Yes, indeed. It's Camp Week. Camp Katubik is where a lot of folks are. I was talking with uh, Dan Preston uh, just yesterday about some other stuff, and he said he's going to be doing camps and doing other stuff. He's going to be gone for like four weeks in a row. And uh, there was nothing from the home office to pass along to you because there are a lot of other people. Thanks. A lot of other people and, uh, you know, from the home office and so forth, and, and they're very focused on camp, you know. And uh, I don't know if I've, I've uh, mentioned this to you before, but do you, do you know what the average retention rate of young people is in the churches in the United States as a whole? Not United, but all churches. Anyone know offhand? 38%. You know what it is in United? 75. I think the camp program is one of the ways that we accomplish that important goal, which is getting our kids in tune with God's truth and God's church. And so I'm really pleased. Uh, you know, in spite of the fact that we have a lot of empty seats, I know they're off doing good stuff, and so I'm pleased about that. They missed a good reading. Um, very, uh, I'm looking forward to going through the whole book of Philippians. I thought uh, Mr. Kosher did an excellent job of uh, deftly answering uh, that question about Paul and his desire to be with Christ. I was going to uh, Thessalonians 4, but I thought his scripture was better. So my advice is get your little pen out and just write that scripture in your margin of your Bible so that you know when you read that or someone's asking you about it, that's a go-to scripture to address that issue. It's good to have your Bible marked up, you know, dialogue with it, understand what it's saying and how to look at other areas of scripture. And one of the great ways of doing that is just, you know, make little marks on the, on the, uh, on the margin, you know. The, the book itself is a tool for you to use. You know, there's nothing sacred about the paper or the ink. It's a tool. Use it as a tool. Okay. Today I uh, have a message for you, and I came up with an, a different title than the one you see on the slide there. After thinking about it, I thought a better title for what I would like to talk to you about today is God speaks through those whom he chooses. God speaks through whom he chooses. And we're going to look at this topic through Daniel, who was an interpreter of dreams, an interpreter of dreams. So this man, Daniel, he'd been placed by God in a very, very difficult, but also important and um, historic position. He was within the court of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And we've talked about that in past weeks. And he was put there for a reason. He was put there to witness to God's power over all nations. Israel, Israel had fallen. People could have laughed and said, ah, oh, God's nation is done for, we're better. But God had a message for them and for all history, and it came to them through Daniel, an interpreter of dreams. Now the lesson is also one that is for you and me today. And the lesson is this. Because God controls and directs the affairs 
of the kingdoms of this earth, of which Nebuchadnezzar was just an example, you and I, who live today in the year 2022, should be mindful of this and know and have confidence that he does control the events of your life. If he can control the uh, history of the world, he can reach into your little life and deal with it. And that's a matter of confidence. Now, let's take a look at Daniel. Okay. Well, I'm just, I'm basically looking at a little bit of review. Oh, good, we're back. So I dealt with the previous section of Daniel, which was, you know, when Daniel had to stand up for what he believed in about, you know, eating the king's food. And you'll see how this plays into it. But first, let's take a look at the next section, which is starting in verse 17, and I'm going to read through verse 21. And it says, to these four men, the men who had stood up to the court and said, no, we're not going to defile ourselves, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Of course, that means Babylonian literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and wise men in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he was there until the bitter end when Babylon fell. Now God was working with Daniel and his companions. And he was doing this, accomplishing this through the power of his spirit. God gave Daniel some spiritual gifts and some intellectual gifts. He understood the literature, the culture, and the wisdom of Babylon, which would help him interact with these people. But it would be the interpreting of dreams that would cause Daniel to rise to a position of power and influence in the king's court, where he would serve as God's witness. Now, Daniel had proven his obedience in the previous section of the scripture through that simple test of not defiling himself with the royal food. Whether that meant it was clean versus unclean meat or maybe it was food offered to idols or something like that, but he wouldn't do it. It was a simple test and Daniel passed. And I believe this is why the book of Daniel begins with that interesting little story, you know, why would you start off this monumental story of this prophet of God with this little question about eating unclean food? It was a test of obedience. And Daniel passed. And if you look at the scriptures, for example, Acts 5 verse 32, to whom does God give his spirit? 
Who does God work with? Who's God focused on? Acts 5 verse 32, God gives his spirit to those who obey him. So let's talk a little bit about dream interpretation. Okay, dream interpretation. Well, dream interpretation was a big deal. So this was very actually important for Daniel to have this because dream interpreting was part of the whole Babylonian uh, wisdom tradition, all right? They believed that the gods, of course, they, you know, they, they had a whole bunch of false gods, but they believed that the gods spoke to them through dreams. But these dreams needed to be interpreted. And so when we read about Daniel, you know, being put into the king's service, he's kind of lumped in there with all the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers. And there's Daniel, right? So he's, he's you know, kind of in a weird, wacky environment. A uh, little bit about these magicians, enchanters, and, you know, different translations use different words. So I kind of dug down and looked at the actual uh, words that were there in the Aramaic. Uh, magician. You know, I'm, reading, I'm reading from the NIV and it uses the word magician. Well, that word magician, when you look into what, what the word is, what it means, it means an engraver. Someone who writes stuff down. So, scribe. A scribe, for example. Someone who, who records stuff. These were guys who maintained the Babylonian literature. You know, all the, all the, the, the tablets and stuff they had on the shelves in the file room. And that literature was what we would call astrology, mixed in with astronomy and mathematics. But a lot of it was astrological and therefore sort of an, an occult interpretation of natural things that they saw in the skies and so forth. Okay? And you could think of it as a library of rules spells, omens, what they meant, and dream interpretation manuals. Now, the other, other one mentioned here was an enchanter. Okay. Well, an enchanter means one who would uh, be in contact with the spirit world. So that would probably be a person who uses this information to establish contact with the spirit world to get guidance, insight, understanding. You know, supposedly these guys were in close contact with the, the spirits, the gods, due to the nature of their studies. They're studying all this literature. They must be in contact with the gods. And that's why they were considered important advisors to the king. He wanted to get this, you know, what should I do from the gods? He wanted the guidance and the favor of these gods, Nebuchadnezzar. And this was a means to get it. This is how the Babylonians approached stuff. The Babylonians would have considered uh, these magicians to be benevolent, you know, like what we might work, you know, Disney might call white magic. Uh, you know, the, the, there would have been um, unofficial magicians out there on the street who did stuff like, you know, mixing up love potions, doing voodoo and cursing people and all that, but that's not what was going on in the king's court, right? These were people who were using this body of understanding and, you know, it was built on human reason, but they would use it to try and connect with the spirit world to give good guidance to the king. 
it's interesting, I think, to consider that, you know, Moses also was in an environment when he was, you know, being raised in the household of Pharaoh, when he was surrounded by magicians and enchanters as well, and the wisdom and understanding of Egypt, which Moses knew, would have also been of that same ilk. And God used Moses to condemn the magic arts. Just so we set the record straight, let's look at some of the stuff that God says about this whole practice through Moses. Leviticus 19, verse 26, he says, uh, do not practice divination or seek omens. You know, looking for signs through natural phenomenon. Uh, drop down to verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. And these would be people who are supposedly communicating with the spirit realm. Uh, let's see, Leviticus 20, verse 6. It says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums, and these enchanters, and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them. Deuteronomy 18. There's lots more of this in the prophets, but these are the laws, statutes, and judgments on this. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 10 through 12. Uh, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does those things is punished, should be punished by death. So it's a big deal. God has, you know, some rules about this. Let me summarize. God does not want human beings that includes you and me, to attempt to communicate with the spirit world. No. Not at all. All right, let's see. However, Israel, if you think about it in these terms, Israel was indeed offered a way to communicate with the spirit world. They were. But there were strict rules and boundaries. Think of the title that I came up with. God speaks through whom those he chooses. So, a few points that I have up here. Communication with the spirit world. Communication was only allowed with Yahweh, God. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Communication was facilitated through specific channels. For example, the ordained priesthood, the written word, coming before God, seeking God, required certain things to be done in advance. Cleanness, atonement for sin, and God himself, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also communicated to people through other means, prophets, visions, but really these are the exception rather than the rule. God primarily speaks through his priesthood and the written word. Yeah, they're visions, they're prophets, but that's the exception. So these are the outlines of how God says, okay, there can be, there can be some back and forth between human beings and, and the spirit world, but God has some very, very strict rules about it. 
Okay, with that said, how does God speak to us today? You know, we talked about dreams, we've talked about visions and prophets, and how does God speak to us today? Well, I think the go-to scripture for that is Hebrews 1. This is a bit of a sidebar, but Hebrews 1 and verse 1 through 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, the age of the church, he has spoken to us by his son, through whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. In this time, the age of the church, in which we find ourselves still in, God primarily speaks to us through the written word, the testimony of, of his son and his work, and the understanding provided to us through the Holy Spirit, this power of Christ in us. And God manages this present communication with us through instruction and teaching from an ordained ministry. There's still rules. Uh, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, many scriptures I could cite on this, but uh, let's take a look at this. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be little children tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. 2 Peter 1 verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy or teaching of scripture comes about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, private interpretation. It is a communal effort. Run with the herd. And when we go outside the channels, you know, there were channels for Israel, there are channels for us today. When we go outside the channels, authorized by God, we open ourselves up to the forces of spiritual wickedness that are at work in our world. God gives us these rules for our own protection. Okay, back to Daniel. God had a message for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, all who would follow him and all who would read the scriptures in the centuries that would follow. And through this Bible, through this written word, we have a record of that message God had for Nebuchadnezzar. And what is that message? Well, in short, and we've gone through this before, and you have heard this before, I hope. If you've not been around a long time, you will hear this. It is a foretelling of the great Gentile kingdoms, the nations of this world, the kingdoms that would dominate the people of Israel from that time on. Israel had fallen. They'd been conquered. It was a new page in human history. Gentile kingdoms were going to rule until the return of Christ. What do they need to know? Some basic stuff. 
God's message for Nebuchadnezzar, I think, can be summarized in this way. And, you know, this plays out throughout the book of Daniel, not just here. One, and these are good things for us to know as well. I, Yahweh, God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Scripture, am in charge of human history. And you can do nothing outside of what I decree, what I say, what I allow. Two, there is a predetermined end to your day in the sun, your time of dominance. And three, and this is the one I really think is meaningful for us, I, God, speak to you through the messengers of my own choosing. Not your enchanters, your magicians. I don't come at your request because you've performed some dance or whatever you've done. I come through the messengers of my choosing, not yours. All right. Let's read Daniel 2, verses 1 through 4. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in, they stood before the king, and he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Now, I've, I've heard people talk about this uh, response by the magicians and say those crafty rascals they were trying to trick the king into telling them the dream uh, and then they would just you know give him some pat answer well i do not think that it's as simple as that i don't think that they were being tricky or deceitful this was how things were done you tell me the dream and then i go into the archives i grab the dream manuals i look up the appropriate passages and i tell you what it means that's how it works that's my job. That's what I do. We apply these standardized rules of interpretation from the mighty manuals that explain all the symbolism and stuff like that. And I think of it kind of as a parallel to uh, modern psychoanalysis, you know, where someone lays on the couch and they tell, they tell your dreams, ah, oh, well, this means that your father is very important, that kind of stuff. Hence the pictures. Now, Actually, archaeologists working in Babylon have uncovered copies of these dream interpretation manuals. This is how stuff was done. The king, he's a smart guy. He's skeptical. He is not just going to roll over for all this. He's kind of skeptical. He wants some sort of proof from these men that they're actually communicating with the gods not just reading from some book. So he has a test for them. If they can tell him the contents of the dream without him telling them, then that, that would be a supernatural demonstration that would validate the interpretation they gave him. Let's read that, verse 5 through 8. So the king replied to the astrologers, Hmm, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turned into a pile of rubble. But 
If you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So, tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And once more they replied, Ah, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it for you. <laughs> let's, let's play by the rules, king. <laughs> tell me the dream and tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. And then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain some time. You're just buying time, guys, because you realize uh, this, is, this is what I have firmly decided. I'm not moving on this. Now, these, these verses indicate that the king knew and he remembered the contents of his dream. I've read this sometimes in the past and I thought, you know how you have a dream and you wake up and you think, wow, that was a cool dream. And you can't tell anybody what it was because <laughs> it's like, it's gone from your brain, right? That wasn't the case here. The king, he knew the contents of the dream. It was actually a recurring dream. You know, the scriptures say the, the king had dreams. So it was a recurring dream. He, he didn't withhold it because he'd forgotten what it was necessarily. He knew that the, these magicians and enchanters were, were just going to pull these manuals out and they were going to give him some standardized explanation from the manuals. How could he know that what they said was really trustworthy? I mean, like I said, this has been a recurring dream. He knew something was going on here. He knew this was very important. And, you know, he threatens to execute the whole bunch of them if they can't do this. Well, Daniel comes to the rescue, if you will. Daniel to the rescue. <clears throat> Verse 10 through 16. The astrologers answered the king. And the king's making this request. And they come back to him one more time and they say, this is very important. This is their own estimation of themselves. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. And no king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Think about this. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. They're basically saying, we don't actually have communication with the gods. We're just, you know, we're, we're just working here. You know, we got a job to do. Reading on. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to also put them to death. You know, remember, they'd just sort of been lumped in with all these guys, right? When Arioch, he's the commander of the king's guard, sort of like the you know, police force that was sent out to grab these guys and arrest them, when he'd gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. And remember when we talked about his interaction about unclean food, he approached them with wisdom and tact. That's the kind of guy he was. And he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went into the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Daniel to the rescue. Daniel intervenes. The magicians and the enchanters 
knew that they weren't in touch with the gods. They basically said, no, King, this is, this is outrageous. You know, you can't, you can't ask us to do this. Only the gods can do that. They don't, they're not, they don't dwell among men. They knew. Also, this is a setup for Daniel. And he's going to ride in. He's, he's going to intervene. He's, the, he's the, uh, the white knight here. And remember who is Daniel. Daniel is a man who will be able to tell the king the content of his dream and be able to provide a reliable interpretation. Because Daniel was in touch with the spirit world. The other guys weren't, they knew it. Daniel was, or could be. He was in touch with Yahweh, the true living God. And through Daniel, God was going to prove a point to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, and to all the great kingdoms that would follow, and to all the readers of this section of scripture throughout time. And that message, once again, is I am, I rule, I communicate with you in the manner I choose, and I work through those who obey me. Daniel was in contact. I mean, he could, he could actually have some sort of real contact with the spirit world, which was God, because he obeyed God. Of course, the communication would be at God's initiation. Go to Isaiah 47. The God of Scripture knew about Babylon, knew what they were all about. There's in, the, in chapter 47 of Isaiah, it's an entire chapter about this crazy stuff they did. Go down and sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. And no longer will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs, and wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. They were just another nation. Sit in silence, go in darkness, queen city of Babylonians, and no more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, and I desecrated my inheritance, and I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a heavy yoke, and you said, I am forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider the things to reflect on what might happen. Now, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security, saying to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you. God's going to deal with Babylon. In the moment, on a single day, loss of children, widowhood, and they will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries. And he's getting into it. He knew what they were about. Sorceries. Ugh. In spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells, and you've trusted in this wickedness and have said, no one sees me, your wisdom and knowledge, these manuals that they had, they mislead you and mislead others, of course. And when you say to yourself, I am, and there's none beside me, disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. 
A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot warn off with a ransom. A catastrophe that you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you've labored at since childhood. Perhaps you'll succeed, perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you've received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they're like stubble. Fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not, sorry, these are not coals for warmth and not a fire to sit by. That is all they are to you. These have dealt with, sorry, these you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go in their error, and there is none that can save you. So God was not a fan of Babylon, <laughs> and he was not a fan of their whole approach to communicating with the gods, trying to find wisdom. So let's get back to Daniel. Daniel has a very different approach. How does Daniel approach this matter? Does he go to a manual? No. What, here's what he does. He goes to the power of prayer. That's what Daniel does. Here's a man of God who wants to communicate and talk with God. He goes to prayer. Daniel 2, verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Remember, he's, he's made a commitment to the king. I'm going to tell you what this means. And he goes to his friends and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. The power of prayer. Now Daniel, he had this life in the king's court and it was, it was perilous. This, this was yet the you know, second time that he's up against the wall. This was a very difficult assignment, scary. The second time he faced punishment and death. And in time of trouble, his response is prayer. And he asks his friends to pray with him. In contrast to the ways of Babylon, the mystery and the magicians and the astrologers, well, let's find out the answer by looking at the movement of the planets. What's going to come next? What should we do? What is where's the you know, Aquarius and the Saturn and you know, all that other stuff they come up with in, in astrology? Uh-uh. Daniel does not seek wisdom and answers from the library of human wisdom, but from the personal living God who is sovereign over all. And that God of Israel answers Daniel. And he will answer you as well. And what does Daniel do? He, you know, he gets the answer. We read that. He got the answer. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Daniel offers praise and thanks. He's been blessed, he's been given answers, and he turns around and he offers praise and thanks. Now, the, the, the scriptures could have simply said, and Daniel praised God. Uh, but it doesn't actually do that. Daniel's prayer of thanks is recorded. 
And we have many prayers in Scripture. We often go to the model prayer that Jesus uh, gave to the disciples when they asked him, how should we pray? And that's, I think, only one. It's you know, probably where you should start. But there are other prayers in Scripture which I think serve as models for us that we can look at and say, well, you know, how does prayer work? What should I do? I think we've got one right here. Daniel's prayer of thanks is recorded for everyone who reads these scriptures so that we don't miss the important point that God is accomplishing or saying through Daniel. The God of Israel, the God who is in heaven, is declaring and proving, because Daniel's going to meet Nebuchadnezzar's test. He's going to give him this proof, this you know, supernatural proof. So God is declaring and proving himself through Daniel to be the ruler over all human history and communicating through whom he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar is going to get this supernatural proof, right? Daniel tells him, or will tell him, the content of his dreams. We'll get to that next. And for you and me, readers of Scripture today, we get our proof by reading the prophecies that follow in this dream interpretation and seeing that they play out in actual human history. It's an important proof of God for you and for me. Let's take a look at Daniel's prayer, though. Verse 20, Daniel said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. So God alone, Yahweh, God of Israel, alone is worthy of praise. Next verse. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. So God, the God of Daniel here, is the one who rules over history in all eras. eras. All human governments derive their authority from him and he changes them at will. Moving on, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. Daniel is, you know, revving up in his mind, which is something we do in prayer, what's really going on here. This interpretation is not a matter of human reason or human logic or rationalization, like it would have been if it had been left up to the magicians. The interpretation is revealed by God and could never be figured out using only the power of the human mind. The stuff that follows, you know, it, 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 some people think it's, it's, it's weird and nutty. It isn't something that comes from the human mind. The God of Scripture can do these things, though, and does. Last verse, 23 Daniel says, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. And you have made known to us the dream of the king. And here Daniel's thanks is very personal. I, me, my, us, we. God's answer is given in response to Daniel's personal, heartfelt request and we also, I think, see the importance of praying together. 
he asked his companions to pray with him. Takeaway for you and me, practical takeaway, when God answers one of your when God answers one of your prayers, be sure to thank him. Be sure to thank him. That's what Daniel's doing here. He's doing more, but he's definitely thanking God. Daniel now moves to give the content of the dream. Meet Nebuchadnezzar's request. You know, the one that the magician said, we, we can't do that. Daniel said, I can do it. Because he, he knew that God would answer him. Daniel 2, verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner, astrologer can explain to the king the mystery that he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. So before we get into the interpretation of the dream, there's a layup, all right? Daniel sets the matter in proper perspective. Speaking to the king, he says, all right, telling the content of your dream and what went through your mind is not something that any human being can know. It is a demonstration of God's greatness. And it, you know, there's this connection here that's made. This is the God of Judah. This is the God of Daniel and his people. This is the God of scripture. This is the God of history. So there's a connection being made here through the person of Daniel and what he stood for, which I think harkens back to the test that started off the whole book. Very Jewish in nature, right? And this is not about Daniel's great power. A couple of key phrases. There is a God in heaven. Something that goes, or comes up over and over again in the book of Daniel. It's a repeated theme of the book and its prophecies. Some of which are fulfilled and some are yet to come. There is a true God as opposed to man-made gods ideas built up from human reasoning and human thought. And he is greater than any exalted political leaders. And he is true. Whereas there are false spiritual teachers. But the living God is the one who is in charge. Another phrase that he brings in there is, in days to come. Literally, that translation means latter part of days, end times, if you will. And there's a number of places where the exact phrase is used in Scripture about end time events. So what he's saying is, God is revealing stuff to you, Nebuchadnezzar, that go right up to the end. And these prophecies will be important up until the end of the age when Christ returns. So, 
Let's take a look at verse 29 through 35. I'm going to give them the contents of the dream here. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned... Oh, I have a, I have a slide here. Bing. Ha. All right, verse 29. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, better knowledge of what's in the archives of Babylon, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked and there before you was a large statue, enormous, dazzling statue awesome in appearance. And the head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its leg of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the winter. And the wind swept them up without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, there's your dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, there's your dream. There's some features, I think, of the statue. One, it's awesome, it's big, you know, literally it's to be feared because it had authority and power. They're not godly kingdoms, but they have authority and power, and all authority and power come from God. Two, each successive stage of this statue is of lesser value, gold, silver, bronze, but it's also stronger, which is kind of scary, except for the clay. Number three, those feet and toes of mixed clay, this entire dazzling, awesome statue is built on a foundation that was weak, brittle and of lasting, of little lasting value. Like the wisdom of Babylon. Your whole concept is based on the wrong premise. So what about the rock that smashes the whole thing? Boom. Features of the rock. What do we learn about the rock? Well, it's of God. Okay. Not cut by human hands. It has greater power and it annihilates the statue. There's nothing left. It's gone. Also, it is a system of government. A holy mountain that grows and covers the whole earth. Its scope is worldwide, not just the Middle East. The end time prophecies are for the whole planet. Oh, the meaning of the dream. Daniel's going to interpret the meaning of the dream. He gave him the content of the dream. He gave him the sign, you know, hey, I can do stuff <laughs> no one should be able to do. So let me give you the meaning of the dream. Now that you believe that I am communicating with the living God, let me, I'm going to give you the meaning of the dream. Now, in this sermon, I'm not going to make a lot of comments about the giant metal statue. I've covered that before. Uh, we can cover it some other time. I plan to cover that later, and will, by comparing it to Daniel's own vision of the four beasts from the sea. So I won't say anything more than I've said about the, 
the statue and the kingdoms and all that stuff. <laughs> Let's take a look at verses 36 through 45, though. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it for the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with the clay. And as the toes were partly from iron and partly of clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the king of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people, and it will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This, Nebuchadnezzar, is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. The dream is about kingdoms. It's about, you know, we might, we might call it politics, geopolitics, whatever. It's about governments, it's about empires. It begins with Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And most agree that these identities are clearly spelled out in scripture and in history. So scripture and history back up the fulfillment of this prophecy. It came to pass. These are the kingdoms that dominate Israel. It's very focused on who controls the Holy Land until the time of the end. And all of them are going to be replaced by a government which is of God, which will cover the whole earth. In a nutshell, that's what the, the vision's all about. We, you, know, you can go into a lot more detail on it, and we, we can and will. Let's take a look, though, at Nebuchadnezzar's response. He hears this. He's been given the proof, and he, he, how does he respond? How does he respond? Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him with many gifts. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, which Daniel himself, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So since, since Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar the contents of the dream before he interpreted it, Nebuchadnezzar had his proof. 
that this was truly of the gods, you know, in his mind. And you and I, uh, we have our proof from history, you know, that this interpretation is true and trustworthy, as parts of it have come true and can be proven in history. Nebuchadnezzar the king, however, his response, he doesn't, um, I mean, he does not acknowledge Yahweh, the God of Israel, Daniel's God, as the only God, though. Rather, as the chief God. He says, you know, definitely this is the, you know, he's the big, the big cheese. But he's still got room for Babylonian gods. He says he is the God of gods. He's very impressed with what Daniel's given him. Very impressed. But he's not converted to the biblical faith. And people can be very impressed by God's works in history, but not be converted to the biblical faith. The practical outcome, though, is that Daniel is put in a great position. This is how he ends up in this position in Babylon, where he can have lasting and ongoing purpose as a servant of God and a witness of God. He's put in this position and he, can t he will fulfill that role of servant and witness, servant and witness to the true living God. And he would be there throughout the entirety of Babylon's remaining time and beyond. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's response. What about your response? What about my response? God wanted some important understanding to be written down and embedded in human history. And as the scriptures say, these things were recorded for your understanding. So that you might learn, I might learn, we might learn and have confidence in the living God. And God would prove his truthfulness through the fulfillment of these prophecies although some of them are yet to be fulfilled. And this was a witness to Babylon, and it was a witness to the successive kingdoms, and it's a witness to the entire world. And many people recognize it, but are not necessarily converted to the true faith. It's also a witness to you and me, those of us who are gathered here today, a witness of some key points. It is God, Yahweh, God of Israel, God of Scripture that we're talking about. And he communicates with humanity, meaning you and me and everybody, in a manner of his own choosing. It is God who says how he will communicate and what he will communicate. And he's not summoned by religious rites. We come before God as he dictates. That's a living lesson that you're living out today. God says, you want to interact with me? Awesome. I've got some rules. That's what you're doing today. Our interaction with God is governed by rules. Also, God gives understanding through human instruments. 
Another takeaway from this book that we've just been going through, through the human instruments of his own choosing. I mean, Babylon had their, their guys, you know, I, I want these guys and I want it to have done this. No. God works through human instruments of his own choosing, not our choosing. And he gives the spirit of understanding to who? Who does God give his spirit to? Those who obey him. That is a litmus test. You've got to pass that. I mean, there's other stuff. There's other stuff. But that's a very important litmus test. Our God, your God, my God, is also in control of world history. And therefore, he's in control of your personal life, my personal life. He's in control of this congregation. He's in control of this church. If he can control the history of the world, he can, he can handle us. Finally, your God, my God, is all-knowing. All-knowing about people, what's going on through their minds, and kingdoms, and history. He knows it all. And therefore, he knows everything about you, good and bad. And he still loves you, and he still cares for you, and he has a plan for you. And knowing these truths, knowing these truths, let us continue to obey him in matters great and small, so that he can bless us, that his spirit can be with us, and let us present ourselves to him in fear and trembling at his word and play by his rule book.